In the opening of Paul's letter to churches, like this one to the Philippians, Paul signals an important theme of his letter and reason for writing. In verses 9 to 11 of chapter 1, he tells them what he prays for them. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. The word of the Lord. As Brenna stated last week, uh, we're addressing prayer as our communion with God, our, our um, connection with God. I think the practice of prayer is our truest reflection of our faith. Um, the greater the distance between us and God, the less likely we are to pray. And in turn, the more in touch we are with our soul's longing for God, the more inclined we are to pray. I think the same is true of prayer's content, the words that we say to God in prayer. People who seldom pray find it awkward to know what to say when a crisis occurs. Whereas people who trust God with every aspect of their lives are able to articulate their sense of awe in God's presence with words of adoration and praise, hope, humility, and gratitude. This is one of the reasons why we've chosen some popular prayers to consider their language and their content as a way of expanding our own prayer life, as a way of enriching it. Most of us can certainly identify with a prayer to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. When I hear the word serenity, I immediately think of travel advertisements. You know, like the picture from a beach bungalow that looks out on a white sand with an ocean blue, and it's like, I want to be there, right? Or a mountaintop. I, I don't try to, they don't ever show you the trail or how you got there, <laughs> but they show you this mountaintop experience with layers of shaded uh, mountain ranges off in the distance. And it's like, I want to be there. Do you know that people look at pictures of Sonoma County and say, I want to be there? And you go, really? You know, it's just routine here. It's, it's not that unusual, and yet it's a point of destination for someone. A prayer for serenity is something we can easily identify with and probably pray from time to time. But when's the last time you prayed for courage? Especially courage not just to address the things that, that can be changed, but what about those things that should be changed? That we see and know something's wrong in our world and we should do something about it. We should say something. Someone's being wronged and they're defenseless. Someone should stand with that person. When do we pray those prayers? During the early days of World War II, the fate of England and of Western Europe landed on the shoulders 
of the newly appointed British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Churchill wasn't the party's first choice, his party's first choice. Parliament had lost confidence in Neville Chamberlain, his predecessor. And Churchill was the only conservative with whom the opposition approved. So reluctantly, they sent him to the king to be considered as the new prime minister. The film Darkest Hour depicts Churchill as this lone politician willing to defy Hitler and to declare war at any cost if necessary when so many around him wanted peace. They wanted it to just go away. They wanted somehow to reach an agreement with Hitler using Mussolini, that trusted leader to the south. It's easy in hindsight to look, and it's amazing how this film, you know the, how it ends, but it just pulls you in and you want to scream at these people who are saying, well, let's see if Hitler will negotiate. Oh my goodness. But can you blame them? Did they want to repeat the bloodshed of the great war that had cost England so dearly just two decades earlier? They still remember. So what do you do in the face of a crisis? How do you know what to do? What's the right thing? How do you discern what's best? The flexibility of Churchill proved to be one of his greatest assets and the reason he was able to cobble together a coalition government in a time of severe crisis. But as the film portrays, it was the conviction of this man which gave him the courage to act against all odds. Crisis was a word and a reality Reinhold Niebuhr embraced throughout his career. Niebuhr is considered the most prominent American theologian during the most tumultuous years in American history, from World War I to Vietnam, from the Great Depression through the Civil Rights Movement. So prominent was he as the voice of American conscience that that Time Magazine in its 25th anniversary edition had his picture on the cover. When was the last time you saw a theologian on the cover of Time Magazine? His views on pacifism and socialism were so strong, they did change over the years, but because of them, he was closely monitored by the FBI. He was on their watch list. And ironically, it was the State Department that hired him to be a consultant during the Cold War years. Niebuhr became famous for his writings and speaking about human nature and its relationship to political movements and to social justice. He said things like this, man, and he uses man a lot because in those days you did, he was the kind of person who would not single, he would not limit, he would say all of us, he would he would be gender sensitive. But listen with open ears. He, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. Niebuhr saw original sin as the problem that pervades 
all of human history and human life. So he stated this, the tragedy of man is that he can conceive self-perfection, but he can't achieve it. Niebuhr argued, our self-serving bent is most obvious and insidious when manifest in social and corporate structures. In other words, you take a sinner and you put him with another one, and it gets bad. It gets compounded, and it, it has an egregious effect. He says this, the individual or group which organizes any society, however noble, social, its intentions or pretensions, arrogates an inordinate portion of social privilege to itself. In other words, we're always going to look out for ourselves, no matter what, how, how lofty our ideals and how wonderful a contribution we're making in society, we still look out for ourselves and make sure we're benefiting in the process. We're going to always ask, well, what's in it for me? People do that when they go to church sometimes. I'm just appalled. They want to know what's in it for me. I've learned not to answer that question. <laughs> Liberals liked Niebuhr. They thought he was their champion because his message was one of judgment against pretensions to premature or overly simple solutions. In his day, there were ministers, believe it or not, who talked about piety as the only answer and that, and that what we needed to do was you could get close to God, but the social ills of the world and of society, well, they'll take care of themselves if we're just spiritually right. The religious conservatives, on the other hand, appreciated his acknowledgement that beyond judgment, there is always a message of mercy and thus of hope for the contrite. So both sides would appeal to him or would like him, but they would use just parts of what he had to say rather than everything he had to say or appreciate all of him in his complexity. I like how Robert McAfee Brown summarized it saying this way. Um, those who couldn't value Niebuhr's complexity of thought they have listened to him with only one ear. I think that's what's wrong with us today. We're just listening with one ear to what we want to hear, not what we need to learn, how we need to grow, and how someone might move us from a conviction we've held to a new place. Niebuhr said this, that, that we should always confront the falsehoods of, an, of a system or a or an organization with our truth, but we should be prepared to examine our truth, I mean our falsehoods, in our own truth. He was ruthless in his scrutiny of who we are and, and, and being honest with ourselves. The priority for him was always justice. His guiding principle was hope in a redeemer God. And his weapon was an extraordinary gift for clarity of thought that made him the leading voice of the American conscience of his day. We need more theologians like him today. But what Niebuhr's most known for is a prayer. It was first printed on cards and given to soldiers by the Federal Council of Churches. And then later, it was adopted by Alcoholics Anonymous 
as its official prayer. Due to its popularity, the origins and setting for this prayer had become the subject of much research and debate among scholars. Niebuhr's daughter, Elizabeth Sifton, wrote a book and claimed that it was written on the back of an envelope in the summer of 1943 for a village church in Heath, Massachusetts, a church where the family worshipped in the summers and Niebuhr occasionally preached. But researcher Fred Shapiro tracked down an earlier reference by Winifred Weigel, a former student of Niebuhr's and a spokeswoman for the YWCA in the 1930s, in a diary entry 12 years earlier than, than, the, than the prayer was said to have been written. She wrote in her journal, Robert Niebuhr says that moral will plus imagination are the two elements which faith compounded which faith is compounded. The victorious man in the day of crisis is the man who has the serenity to accept what he cannot help and the courage to change what must be altered. So the, the genesis of this prayer was part of his life. It was his life work and his ethics and his convictions. It was part of who he was. It wasn't just composed at one time for one occasion. Most of us are familiar with the opening words to this prayer, commonly referred to as the serenity prayer. Here is the original that Niebuhr composed. It's slightly different than the one that's printed in your bulletin. God, give us grace. Notice grace is left out. Give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. Courage to change the things that should be changed. Notice it doesn't say that I can change, but that should be changed. There's a moral element here. And the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. One sentence. Oh my goodness, what a prayer. In one sentence. It goes on. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time. Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that you, God, will make all things right if I surrender to your will. So that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. As someone observed, what makes this prayer so compelling is that it succinctly captures Niebuhr's story. It's his, it's his ethics. It's his, it's his conviction of life. This realistic view of who we are, what we're like what in our human nature, that we, we need serenity to accept what can't be changed. Many of us still think we're in control. Hopefully, by coming here each Sunday, you're reminded we're not. And then comes this idealistic commitment that Niebuhr had to social justice, that we should work for such things. We should have courage to change things that should be changed. And then all of this in a time of moral ambiguity 
much like our world today, that according to Niebuhr requires humility and discernment, the wisdom to know the difference, the one from the other. The modified version of the opening line is considered the prayer of addicts. People who know the key to serenity is acceptance. It's in our nature to be creatures of habit. Just look where you're sitting. Where did you sit last Sunday? I sit in the same spot every Sunday. No, think about it. We do... I, I go home one way, and I come to work another way. I don't even go the same way, but I do it the same time, same thing, all the time. We are just people of habit. We do the same thing over and over again. You know the definition of crazy is when you do the same thing over and over again, but you expect different results. It's not going to happen. We are also people who live by our impulses, our desires, and our cravings. And in that sense, every one of us is an addict. But when habits are destructive, like becoming dependent on drugs or alcohol or pornography, just to name a few, the list can go long. I mean, it would encompass most of us at some point. We become powerless to do something about their effect. How many of us know how painful that is, either personally or we know someone we love who has suffered so? Learning to accept what is true about us is the first step in moving toward recovery and living free of what controls us. This line tells the story of who we are with a sense of compassion for our brokenness that we all share. We need grace to accept with serenity what cannot be changed, at least by us. And I love how this opens us up to the redemptive power of the gospel. That with God, it's possible God wants to transform us, to heal us, to restore us, to make us new. In my research of the articles I read about the origin of this prayer, someone wrote down at the bottom, well, all this is wonderful to consider all the citations and the emergence of this prayer. But then he wrote this, that it had served a greater purpose. When I first got sober, I used this prayer like a bicycle, and I rode it everywhere I went. Imagine if this prayer was a lifeline for you, that it was a reminder that my life depends on God. There's something about being with someone who, who is in recovery that their life is so raw and so real that you can understand that when someone makes that connection of faith in God, for some it's faith in a higher power, but they, they realize what that means. That's all of us. We need to learn what that means and what it looks like to be that dependent on God, that desperate for God. And then to change what should be changed, that takes courage. 
especially when being complicit or compromising truth for our own self-interest and self-advantage seems to be the norm of today. Who of us is not tired of hearing people lie through their teeth about what they said, about what they did, about who they are, posing and having pretense about their importance and their greatness, when all the while we know what's right, what's true. Who's going to stand up and say it? I long for Washington to be, to be leaders again and not look out after their own status and standing and re-election and, and party lines. But I don't put my faith in Washington. I put my faith in, in you and in me to live the way the gospel tells us to. When we see injustice, when someone's being maligned, when, when it's up to us to make a difference, we have the courage, and if we don't have it, to pray for it, that we can change what should be changed and not put up with it anymore and not let someone be hurt ever again. I think this was the urgency the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. He loved these people dearly. No other church loved him, cared for him, sent him money, uh, looked after his interest, uh, sent people to encourage him. There were few churches that he, that he um, helped found or get started that cared for him as much as the church in Philippi. And so Paul loved these people, and yet he had to write to them to say, in chapter 2 and chapter 4, you begin to find out there's some people who are elevating themselves above everyone else, using their social standing and their, and their class distinction to, to think they're more important. And he says to them, don't just look after your own interests, but be concerned about the interest of others. And he has to appeal to the Savior that they all worship and follow, who was self-sacrificing in his life to rescue them. That's who you follow. Shouldn't we imitate him in the way we live for each other? discern, he says. He, he says to them, I want your love to grow more and more. I want it to become real. It's not love that is a good feeling you have inside. It's the kind of love that has to work when someone's hurt you and offended you. When someone promised you something and didn't deliver and you say, you mean too much to me. The gospel's too important in both of our lives. Our Savior died for each of us. We've got to work at this. We've got to get it right. There's too much at stake. We can't let our culture dictate how we live with and for each other. We've got to let the gospel tell us there's a higher priority, that relationships matter, words matter, people matter. And if that's true, then, then, then relationships in a church like ours are going to flourish. Paul calls it a harvest of righteousness. Righteousness is just Right relationships, relationships that are working, a community that is thriving, that has resilience when something goes wrong, that has conviction at its core. 
Then he says, we'll live a life Jesus can be proud of. May we know the serenity of accepting what cannot be changed. May we have the courage to right wrongs that we encounter, that we are responsible for. We might not have caused them. They might not affect us. But we have a responsibility. May God give us humility and discernment to know the difference one from the other so that we learn to pray what we live and that we're able to live what we pray. Amen.